0: Welcome to the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast. I am crazy excited for today's episode. Very early on in my learning how to cook from scratch journey, I realized that salt was a game changer. Now, that may sound a little silly to you, but honestly, up to that point, I kind of treated salt like a lot of folks do. I considered it an afterthought not a necessity to my cooking, and it was just something you kept in a shaker on the table and you added it to your food as you were eating. But in the course of learning how to cook and understanding more about whole food ingredients, I have since realized that salt is so much more than that, and not all salt is created equal. In today's episode, I am so pumped to have a salt expert joining me And we are going to discuss some of the biggest questions that I know I've had in relation to salt, and I'm guessing that a lot of these will ring true for you as well. I'm your host, Jill Winger, and this is the podcast for the trailblazers, the mavericks, the makers, the homesteaders, the modern pioneers, and the backyard farmers. If you're ready to boost your food security and live a more homegrown lifestyle, well, this is the place for you. So in some of my other episodes this month, you may have heard that Redmond's Real Salt is my sponsor uh, for this next period of time. So I want you to know, <laughs> this was not accidental. I actually had my eye on Redmond's for a while because I have used their salt for years and years and years. And I told Michelle, um, who works with different company relationships and she reaches out to different sponsors for me, I'm like, we've got to get Redmond's. I really want to have Redmond's as a sponsor because I think it would be so fun to do a deep dive into salt. And I said, if this works out, my one stipulation is that if they're going to sponsor, then I get to have one of their salt experts on the podcast so I can grill them (laughs) with questions. And so I am so excited to introduce a salt expert to you today. Daryl Bosshart is passionate about healthy living, healthy eating, and lifelong learning. He grew up working for the family mineral business in Redmond, Utah, that's Redmond's Real Salt, and then earned a Bachelor of Science degree at Southern Utah University, followed by an MBA at Western Governors University. So needless to say, Daryl knows his stuff. And as you will hear in this interview, there's a lot more to salt than meets the eye. I learned a ton, and I know you will too. So here we go. Hey, Daryl, thanks so much for joining me today, and welcome to the old-fashioned on-purpose podcast.
1: Jill, thanks for having me on your program.
0: I have been looking forward to this interview for a couple weeks now. Ever since we got it scheduled, um, believe it or not, this sounds super weird. I have been really interested in salt over the last couple of years. And I've been wanting to kind of get to the bottom of a lot of conflicting information out there of like what to use, what not to use. So I'm excited to talk to a salt expert today.
1: Well, I am glad you would have me on your program. And I would agree, salt is one of the most misunderstood minerals on earth, you know, for thousands of years it was essential for life, it was written into the history books, it was referenced in almost every religious text, and yet today we hear salt's this bad thing, but yet we give it to our animals and we get it in IVs, and so there's just a lot of confusion around this topic, so happy to explore it with you today.
0: Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm pumped. Um, I kind of just want to dive right in. I think the first question I have is kind of a selfish one because it's the number one question on my personal list. Um, and it's, is salt like bad for us? And I guess I asked this question because, uh, last year I wrote a cookbook and I have a lot of folks come up to me and say, I love your cookbook, but I, my doctor told me to watch my salt. So what do I do when I'm cooking your recipes? And I'm all, I'm never like quite sure what to tell them because my recipes are whole foods. They're not like processed stuff. So I'm like, well, just reduce the salt or I don't know. Like what are, what's your thought and uh, take on all of that?
1: So salt is essential for life. So without salt, everything dies. And when you go to the hospital, the first thing they're gonna do is they're gonna give you an IV of saline solution, which is salt water, because salt is so essential for regulation in everything in the body. If salt were truly bad for you, you wouldn't get an IV of sodium and chloride and water when you go to the hospital. Now, there are a few people that probably are salt sensitive, but it's a much smaller percentage than we've been led to believe because even somebody who is quote-unquote salt sensitive will still get an IV of salt water when they go to the hospital. And so the challenge with salt is twofold. Uh, One, a lot of the studies that were done on salt early on were done on copious amounts of salt, and it was also attached to the foods that high salt levels were used in. You know, if we go back before we had the Refrigerator, you know, all of us would have eaten more salt because our foods would have been preserved in it, right? We would have had kimchi and sauerkraut and pickles and all of our meats we would have preserved in salt. But yet we didn't have all these problems that are, you know, that are associated with salt today because food has changed and the nature of salt has changed. So it's kind of a twofold problem. Um, when our bodies are craving salt, we're not craving potato chips. We're not craving craving processed foods. Uh, we're craving the salt that our bodies need because you know I wouldn't recommend your listeners do this, but if you've ever, you know tasted your tears, your tears are salty. If you've ever tasted uh, your sweat, your sweat is salty. and I wouldn't recommend this at all. If you ever tasted urine, urine would be salty because our bodies process salt in order to function. So when that salt level drops, Eventually, you would end up with hyponatremia, which is low salt, and you would actually die because of that. Salt is given intravenously in every hospital in the world. So, salt isn't bad, but processed salts and the foods that salt has been attached to do cause problems.
0: So, it would be fair to say maybe that, like, if you're eating a steady diet of things like, I I don't just like thinking of foods off the top of my head hot dogs, like processed hot dogs and processed bologna and can a cream of mushroom soup in a can, that sort of salt is going to be completely different for us versus like putting salt in the food that we're cooking from whole food ingredients?
1: A hundred percent. You're right. And, and twofold because of that. So salt is a natural preservative, which is why it's been used since the dawn of time to preserve meat. Salt is also essential in animal husbandry. Any farmer knows that or or zoo owner, every... Everybody knows in animal husbandry that salt keeps animals alive. And so to think that humans somehow don't need salt is is kind of silly at best. But a lot of the processed foods have either high amounts of salt in them, for one, to act as a preservative. So when somebody switches to a diet like yours and they're eating more at home and they're cooking their own great foods, you actually have to go out of your way to add salt because you don't have all this processed salt in the processed foods that we're getting. And one of the challenges with salt, again, salt's essential for life, but if you look at the shaker in most grocery stores, you look at the back of that shaker, there's a whole list of ingredients that are in that salt shaker. It's not just natural mineral salt or natural salt from our oceans. What that salt is, is a processed salt that has been demineralized. And often, if you look at, again, look at the label in your salt in your kitchen cupboard, you'll see a list of ingredients, things like um, sodium silicoaluminate, or you'll see things like yellow presciated soda or dextrose. And so because of all of these chemicals that are added to salt, even dextrose, which is a sugar added to salt as a stabilizer, the salt itself doesn't react the same way in the body. Now you might say, well, why in the world would my salt have an ingredient list that should just say salt? And I would agree with you. Um, however, salt is actually hygroscopic. Hygroscopic is a word that means essentially sucks water out of the air. And so in our bodies, the salt is actually a key part of our body's regulation of fluids. It does that by balancing the intercellular and extracellular fluids via the sodium potassium pump. So we need salt to help regulate moisture in our cells. Now, salt, again, attracts moisture. So if you put a salt crystal on your table in Florida and come back in the afternoon, you'll have a pool of water underneath that salt crystal because it's actually dehumidifying the room. It's sucking the water out of the air. Because of that, salt will tend to clump if it's in a granulated form because the water comes in and it gets sticky. Well, around the turn of the century, salt companies start thinking, hey, there's probably some list of chemicals that we could add to make the salt stop absorbing water and stop absorbing moisture so it doesn't clump. And so they found some chemicals that they could treat the salt with that actually repel moisture instead of working like salt should by attracting moisture. And so there was a slogan from a salt company saying, when it rains, it pours, because when it rains outside, it's humid. And when it's humid, the salt wouldn't stick. It wouldn't pour out of the shaker and so the idea of when it rains it pours or a little girl with an umbrella pouring salt out of her shaker on on the label is this idea that if we add chemicals to the salt we can stop the salt from absorbing moisture which is what salt's supposed to do the problem with that is twofold one when you add these chemicals to salt to stop the way to stop it from absorbing and attracting moisture which is what it's designed to do when you take it into your body it doesn't function the same way and it also doesn't taste as good And so when we have this idea of natural salt or unprocessed salt, it's not just, it's not just nothing. It's not trivial. The reason that salt is so essential is when it's in the right form and it's balanced, your body can't overdose on it.
0: Ah, that's fascinating. Okay. Um, And I've always had that hunch, but I've never been able to get confirmation, you know, of the differences there, but it totally makes sense.
1: You know, it's kind of similar to, um, you know, I, I think of vitamin C. When you buy vitamin, or sorry, let's think of an orange. If I'm an orange farmer and I've got this great orange, and we all know that oranges are high in citrus, and citrus is high in vitamin C and ascorbic acid, and, and that's good for us. But in the orange, there's a lot more going on than pure ascorbic acid. And when you take pure ascorbic acid, you can overdose on vitamin C tablets, it probably give you diarrhea. You'd have a tougher time overdosing on orange because of all the micronutrients that are with that. You know, vitamin A or or vitamin, you know, vitamin A, beta carotene, you know, that's really important. Um, Beta carotene is really essential in certain levels, but you can also overdose if you took pure beta carotene. Um, You'd have a tougher time overdosing on carrots, though, because it's not in a form that's been refined and processed, and there's other elements and minerals and micronutrients attached to the beta carotene. For that vitamin A versus versus pure vitamin A, and salt's the same way. In nature, salt doesn't occur as this pure sodium chloride with these other chemicals in it. In the oceans, we have sodium chloride, but we also have potassium chloride, calcium chloride, magnesium chloride, all of these other complex chlorides and micro elements that our bodies use and need. Um, you know, and and so rather than you know trying to isolate. Any of these particular elements, you know, rather than trying to isolate vitamin A, the more you can enjoy carrots and food rich in vitamin A, the better off we are. Now I'm not saying there's not a place for vitamin A supplements or or anything like that, but there's certainly something to be said in trying to find foods in a natural format that, that come and they work together synergistically.
0: Absolutely, and that you're speaking my language. I know so many of my listeners are cheering right now because that's what you know what we're all about is that whole food piece, and it just balances everything out so much more efficiently.
1: Correct, and and particularly when it comes to salt, it's this idea, this sodium potassium pump. It's this, and you can, it's kind of a fun YouTube video actually. You can pull up a YouTube video on on the sodium potassium. And um, you can see how this intercellular and extracellular fluids get managed by exchanging sodium and potassium. And in in, in nature, they often occur similar. In, in seawater, you've got potassium chloride, magnesium chloride, calcium chloride. And as you start isolating any one of these particular nutrients, you can throw off the other ones out of balance. And so if you, if you just focus on potassium chloride, that's actually deadly. And, and any salt substitute has a warning on it to avoid... Or to not take a salt substitute without talking to your physician because a salt substitute is primarily potassium chloride, which again can throw off the sodium chloride balance, which then can damage your heart. And so the the balance of electrolytes, especially calcium, sodium, magnesium, potassium, those are really critical. And sometimes by focusing on one, we throw the other ones out of balance.
0: And that's a great point. So potentially when people are looking at salt substitutes to be quote unquote healthier, it actually could potentially be more of a concern than just eating regular whole pure salt.
1: Exactly. And because of that, there's actually a rule in the US. And if you look at any label on a salt substitute, it'll have a warning label on a salt substitute that says for normal healthy people, consult your general practitioner before you. Now, why would you put a warning on that if it were the healthy alternative? Um, But the reason it's there is because you know people have heard that salt's bad. If we gave this presentation at a at a college or a culinary school and said, "Hey, raise your hand if you've heard salt's bad," most people would raise their hand, and so they think, "Well, if salt's bad, a salt substitutes better." However, that is not the case almost most of the time. I mean, there, there might be a rare case where somebody's electrolytes are out of balance and they would get a potassium chloride iv but that is extremely rare your iv will almost always be sodium and chloride because that's the primary saline solution that keeps our bodies alive and well
0: that's fascinating It um, that kind of brings me back when you were talking about them adding chemicals into our typical salt we might find at the grocery store you mentioned dextrose which i have seen on the back of some salt containers and i'm always like Why on earth are they putting sugar in the salt? Is it just a flavor thing?
1: That's a a great question. Very insightful, actually. You know, we used to sing, um, and this might age me a little, but uh, I remember growing up and hearing the Mary Poppins song, just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down (laughs) in the most delightful way. And so I used to say that about salt, you know, just a spoonful of dextrose helps the bad salt go down in the most delightful way, Um, but actually the dextrose isn't there as a flavor enhancer. The dextrose is actually put in as a stabilizer. Some of these other chemicals that are added, uh, particularly the iodine and the yellow appreciated soda will turn colors over time. And so by putting dextrose in there, it's actually a stabilizer to those other additives. So your salt doesn't turn yellow or, or blue or greenish over time.
0: Oh, fascinating! I never would have guessed. Now I know. Okay, very cool. I mean, not cool for the salt for the salt we're buying, but good to know yes. type of school. Yeah.
1: If you see dextrose on your salt label, that's a first indication that you may want to change um, change things up.
0: Absolutely, and that that brings me to my next question: sea salt. So, there's so much buzz about sea salt. Sea salt is that really better for us? What's the difference there?
1: You know, so if we were to, again, if we were to give a presentation and ask people to raise their hand, um, who's heard that sea salt's better? Again, most people would raise their hand. And where this came from was actually back in the early days of the health food movement, you know, in the 1970s. And when the health food movement started and people realized that there was so many chemicals added to most salts, they started to say, well, if the label says sea salt at that time, it meant that it didn't have all these other additives. It was more of a, a pure sounding name. Unfortunately, over the last you know, 30, 40 years, that term has become um, trite or overused or um, it, it's meaningless now. And the reason for that is in the US, any salt, regardless of how it's produced, can be defined as sea salt. It might come from the Dead Sea in Israel, it might come from the Dead Sea and the Great Salt Lake in Utah, or it might come from a current ocean like the San Francisco Bay, the Gulf of Mexico, uh, the Sea of Japan, or it might come from an ancient seabed, a seabed that was laid down during you know, eons ago. But the, the key factor is this: it's a seabed in all of those. And so rather than looking for sea salt, because now you can go to the grocery store and buy a sea salt, if you look at the label on it, it can have more chemicals than maybe the table salt in the blue canister that you grew up using. So I try to encourage everybody to, to, to read labels, and I know you do too. But rather than looking for a name like sea salt, look a little deeper, turn the bottle over. And see, there's actually three questions that I tell people to ask when they're looking for a great sea salt, obviously, um, or a great mineral salt, or salt in general. Obviously, I'm a little biased, um, and I love our brand of, of natural salt here from Utah. But those three questions, you can find other great brands of salt, and it's the same three questions that you know help you find a great, um, you know, produce at your farmer's market. And and I say the first question should be, what's the source? You know, is it coming And when it comes to salt? Is it coming out of a, a, a seabed that's been polluted? Is it coming out of, let's say, the, the Exxon Valdez uh, area? Has it come out of the Sea of Japan after the Japanese disaster? Has it come from the BP area? So the source is really important. Where is that salt coming from? Um, is it coming from a current ocean? Is it coming from an ancient seabed? Is it coming from a Dead Sea? Um, you know the Dead Sea and Salt Lake, called the Great Salt Lake, is a terrible polluted body of salt water. I, I would never want to eat the salt out of the Great Salt Lake. There's probably other areas uh, where it's it's much cleaner. Um, so knowing this source is really important. The second question is who's producing it, and this is one of the beauties of a farmer's market. You know you can you can look the person in the eye that raised the chickens, and you can ask what did they eat and how have they been treated, and and so. Knowing who's producing it becomes a real challenge with some of these larger manufacturers because the food might change hands a dozen times before you get it. So you don't really know where it's really coming from, who's producing it, what are they doing to it? Which is that third question is what's been done to it? Have they taken anything out or have they put anything back in or have they done anything you know kind of uh, weird in the process? And I think if you ask those three questions, What's the source? Who's producing it? And what's been done to what's been done to it? Whether you're, you know, getting eggs or kale or great salt, you're going to come out with a good product. It might not be one particular brand, but you're going to end up with good quality, nutrient-dense food.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, so when we're shopping for salt, what is the difference between like, you know, Redmond's real salt, which I've used forever, and I love that it's for those of you who have not seen it, I kind of I think of it as like the brown salt. It's not actually brown. It's white with speckles, but it looks very organic and very real. And you know, it's like whole um, versus some of the other salts out there that might be like the gray salts or the pink Himalaya type salts. Like what are we looking at as far as differences when it comes to those?
1: Yeah, the great question. So I think there's there's primarily two bigger categories. And the first question would be, is it a processed salt or is it a natural salt? And so Hopefully, we've talked enough on the process side that we know we don't want a salt with the big ingredient deck. We don't want salt. If you if you dump the salt crystals in your hand and they look 100% uniform, beady crystals, um, you know that's not how salt in nature looks. It should be more like a snowflake and that there should be unique shapes and unique crystal formations. Um, and it shouldn't have this, you know, it shouldn't look like it was designed in a lab, Um, And so once you are looking at the natural salt category, and you've set aside any of those with the chemicals, additives, and with the demineralization where they've taken out the other complex chlorides. So once we're looking at natural salts, now we're talking about region, um, and we're talking about flavor. And so when it comes to natural salts, obviously, again, it sounds like you are too, but I'm biased towards our, our Redmond Real Salt from an ancient seabed that was laid down in Utah eons ago. It's got a great flavor, rich in minerals. But there are some other really good options out there. Um, One that you mentioned is the Himalayan salt. Now, the Himalayan salt comes from an ancient seabed, very similar to the Utah uh, real salt. Um, It was laid down during the Jurassic era, according to geologists. I wasn't alive back then to confirm, you know, exactly what year that was. But, you know, laid down eons ago. And so... Uh, geologically, the Himalayan salt that comes out of Pakistan, the real salt that comes out of Utah, and the Bolivian pink salt that comes out of the Andes um, in Bolivia, those three salts are very similar in terms of their flavor and in terms of the, the structure. It's, they're all ancient seabeds that were laid down eons ago. So from then, it becomes a nuance of flavor. Um and the real salt usually has a little bit of, of a sweeter flavor. The Himalayan has a bit of a sharper or maybe a, uh, a little more earthier flavor to some you know, some people. Um, and, and then the Bolivian is even probably more like the, the Utah salt in terms of flavor. Um, and then as long as the manufacturer is, is producing it in a way that you know, doesn't contaminate the salt um, and is doing it in a way that's fair trade, you know, then we're just talking food miles, and so, if I were living in Pakistan, I probably wouldn't, you know, ship salt from Utah all the way over there um, because of just food miles, and uh, you know, there's and there's just a great local source. Same thing with Bolivia, and so that's why I really like the the Utah-based salt here. Now, you mentioned the gray salt. Now, so gray salts they actually come from a current ocean. So if it's a lovely gray color, what they do is they take the seawater from the ocean. The gray salt historically comes from the coast of Brittany, France. They take the water from the ocean, which is about 3% salt. They pull it into an evaporation pond. Sodium chloride will, or water rather, will only hold 26% sodium and chloride. So the ocean is 3%. Max salinity is 26% based on temperature roughly. So they bring the salt in at 3%, they evaporate the water, and as the water evaporates, the salt becomes more dense. When it becomes higher than 26%, the salt falls out of suspension onto the bottom of this pond, which is lined with the gray clay. So when those crystals are then soaked up and extracted, the salt crystals have a lovely gray color because of the clay-lined pond, which gives it a great, nice, uh, nice flavor. The gray salt, because it's not processed, it also has a dampness to it because it is coming from a current ocean. And so it tastes more mild because the water content in the gray salt is typically higher, upwards of even 14%. And so the sodium and chloride content is actually the same. It's still just these, you know, salt minerals, uh, about 80, about 98% sodium and chloride, 2% other minerals that occur with the salt. And then you've got some water in there as well. So it can taste milder, So for some things, it's kind of fun to use a unique salt like that. Um, There's a Hawaiian salt that's produced very similar to the gray salt. It comes out as a lovely uh, red, kind of a dusty red color. And that's because in Hawaii, instead of using a gray clay to line the pond like they do in France, they use a red clay. And so as the salt settles off and they extract it from the pond, it gives the clay a nice uh, dusty red color. And so it's a little bit different flavor um, than than the gray because of the different clays that are mixed in with the salt, and then a little bit different from the real salt or the Himalayan salt. Um, my last one that I think, I'll talk about two more of my favorite natural salts. One is called the Murray River salt. Now Murray River is in Australia, and it's kind of unique because in this case, the salt has a lovely pink color, but the pinkness isn't coming from the clay or the minerals or the ancient seabed like it is in the real salt or the Himalayan salt. The Murray River has a lovely red color to it. It's it's more of a rosy color, kind of a pink color. And it's actually coming from algae that's in the river. If you've ever flown over the San Francisco Bay or Great Salt Lake and you look down, you can see some red color in those salt ponds. And that's an algae that's growing, feeding off the brine shrimp. And in this, the Murray River has a similar algae. And so it gives that red color from the algae into the salt. And it has a a really mild flavor. And then the the last one they'll talk about that your listeners probably ought to try to find some. It's called Bali salt. And it's also called pyramid salt. And these little salt crystals actually shape like a little hollow pyramid. Um, it's a very non-processed, very light salt crystal. And I think the best way to use this, because it is really expensive, is to put it on top of a, like a salt caramel. Or if you're pulling taffy, mm-hmm. uh, you can put a little bit of a, one of these little white pyramid salt crystals on top and it just kind of crunches fun um so so anyway those are some of my favorite salts from around the world Just real salt is my everyday salt but um the the pyramid salt's kind of fun and uh, the murray rivers you know kind of a unique salt as well and again if you ask those three questions you know who's producing it you can re- you know find the person in australia that's harvesting these small batches of murray river salt you can ask them what they're doing to it are they putting anything in it, taking anything out. Um, and you can really find good quality products wherever we live. I mean, we live in a beautiful time where between farmers markets and global economy, you know, we can source amazing food if we just ask the right questions.
0: Absolutely. And I love that you're bringing up the flavors because not that long ago, a couple of years ago, I didn't realize salt tasted different. And I think a lot of my listeners might be in that same boat where they think salt is salt is salt. And it actually, there's huge flavor differences. And If you're cooking, you're know you trying to uplevel your whole food cooking skills, but you're using that um, typical grocery store salt with all the chemicals and the dextrose and all the weird stuff, it potentially is really affecting the flavor of your finished dishes.
1: Correct. And, And that's why, again, I think real salt is such a great base because it is an everyday salt. Some of these other ones that I talked about today are really fun to buy in a little dish and to have Um, You know, when friends come over salt tasting, but the nice thing about real salt is it's high quality, great flavor, but you can buy it in a, you know, convenient pouch or a bucket and, you know, put it in your food storage and you can really use it as an everyday salt. Now, one of the other questions um, we get, if somebody goes onto our website and looks for different salt, they're going to see four different sizes and that's sometimes confusing, um, so salt, the only difference is the size. So we you know, bring the salt and it comes in this beautiful salt crystal. It may be the size of your car when we bring it out of the mine. I'm um, actually not that big, but the salt is a crystal and then we just crush it down to four different sizes. So the first size going from biggest to smallest, the first size is what we call coarse or grinder salt. That's about the size of a peppercorn and you can put your salt in a grinder like you would a salt grinder and you can grind your salt like you would grind pepper. Now there's no real benefit to grinding salt because it's not unlocking freshness like fresh ground pepper, but a lot of the salt grinders today have a little dial on the top that you can twist down and get a little larger salt crystal for maybe a meat rub or you can crank it way down and get a super fine for a little salt dust. So that's the first one is a, is a grinder salt. Um, the next size, we call it kosher size. Now that's kind of confusing when we talk about salt and and here's why. So. In salt, there's two meanings when it comes to kosher, and that's not clarified very often. And so if you're watching a cooking show and the the chef says, now grab your dish of kosher salt, um, it's typically not meaning salt that's approved for the Jewish community. So there's two meanings of kosher. The one is the size of the salt crystal. And the second meaning of kosher is, is it approved for the Jewish community under the Jewish law of health? So... The reason that, that size that's that, that size is known as kosher salt is in Judaism, blood isn't kosher. It isn't. It isn't clean. Or, or um, those in the Jewish faith should not eat meat that has blood in it. Now, salt. Remember, we talked about it being hygroscopic, so it absorbs moisture. Which is why if you put uh, if you slice a tomato and sprinkle some salt on it, you'll see little beads of moisture as it pulls the moisture up out of the tomato. Kind of a fun science experiment for kids. So what you can do with kosher salt is if you take a steak and you cake it or, or pack it in salt, the salt will actually suck the moisture or the blood, which isn't clean, out of the meat. And so that size of crystal which we've known as koshering salt, is a size that's a little bit larger, more like you'd see on on a pretzel or a margarita rimmer. It's this little larger salt crystal. That larger salt crystal will suck the blood out of meat better than a finer crystal without making the meat overly salty. So the reason if you're making, maybe you're doing prime rib or you're maybe making some edamame, and in edamame, we put kosher salt on top, and that kosher salt is a larger crystal, so it dissolves more mildly on the tongue. So now in Judaism, they also have rabbis that will come to a facility and inspect the process. The rabbi doesn't bless anything, but he comes to the facility and ensures that people are washing their hands and there's no pork or things that, according to Judaism, would not fit their law of health. And so if you look at a box of of cereal, and you look on the back you'll see somewhere maybe an o with a uh, an o with a u inside of it or maybe you'll see a star with a little k inside of it those are symbols in judaism to say that it was certified for that branch of judaism now i'm not i'm not jewish but i have come to understand those different symbols and so on our salt if you look at a package of our salt you'll see a little ou which is the orthodox union they send a rabbi in to our facility once a year to just make sure we're following food safety according to according to Judaism. But the size of salt crystal, we have a red shaker. It's got a red lid on it or a kind of a red pouch. You'll notice that that crystal in that pouch is a little larger and that's kosher salt that is approved for the Jewish community as well. Kind of confusing. The third size is granular, which is your fine salt. That's your everyday table salt size. And then the fourth size, we call it powder salt, or you'll see it called popcorn salt. And it's more like confectioner sugar. So when you have something that's really fine, like you you dust a a treat with confectioner sugar or powdered sugar, that sugar hits your tongue really quickly because there's so much surface area. If you put a sugar cube in your mouth, your tongue is only tasting the outside edges of that cube. It's not tasting all of the sugar that's inside the cube. So per per gram, a finer powder will taste sugary, more 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 sweet, and same thing with salt. A teaspoon-sized salt crystal will taste sweet, but a teaspoon of salt powder will taste really salty. So for popcorn, for chips, for uh, you know roasted nuts or sprouted um, sprouted nuts, that s- salt powder will really give a powerful flavor punch without having to use a lot of extra salt on that product.
0: This is fascinating. And I never knew that about the kosher salt. I mean, I've always bought it and recommended it, but I never knew why it was called kosher. And this is like blowing my mind. This is so cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> With kosher, it's it's yeah. um, it used to mean very
1: clean. And people thought, well, if I want a healthy product, I'll buy kosher salt. Um, because because the kosher size salt is larger, it doesn't clump as much. So it's most of the time manufacturers won't put anti caking agents in their kosher salt in their larger salt crystal. Not because it's it impacts the Jewish law of health, but the larger salt crystals don't clump together. And so so that's why people have thought you know kosher salt is more healthy, even though it could still be demineralized and could still have chemicals in it. Um, that's why people have thought that kosher is somehow cleaner.
0: Right. It totally makes sense. And then, so what you said, the granular salt, like most of the recipes in my cookbook, um, your general suppers or lunches, I recommend fine sea salt. So that would be like the granular category you mentioned. Is that right?
1: Correct. Yep. And that that is the best size for, for everyday use. And if you're putting it in, you know, soups or you're baking with it, you know, that is that, you know, you're maybe even doing, you know, pickles or kimchi. Um, I like to make kimchi. Uh, and I just use the fine salt. Um, I could use the powder, but the fine is what I have in the kitchen, and it's just it's just easy. Um, we really like popcorn at our house, um, and the popcorn salt just is a lot more fun because um, if you, and this is kind of a fun experiment, experiment too, but you can take your hand and you fill it full of kosher salt, or if, even if you grab a pinch of kosher salt, those medium salt crystals, you can grab a pinch and just throw it in your pan and And chefs kind of like that. And it's kind of fun to grab a pinch of salt and throw it in. If you grab fine salt like that with your fingers, it's going to stick to your fingers um, because of the, the hygroscopic increases as the size goes smaller, because there's more surface area exposed to attract moisture. Mm -hmm. And if you put powder salt in your hand and then turn your hand over, your hand will be dusted in salt. And so because of that, when you're making chips or, um, popcorn or things like that nuts salted nuts the finer salt crystals will stick and adhere better than a larger crystal if you if you take a piece of kosher salt and you and you put it on top of um, on popcorn and you turn the popcorn over the popcorn the kosher salt would fall off but the popcorn right. salt because it's so small it actually sticks and adheres to the popcorn better so you're getting a, a better dusting, among all the kernels instead of just you know bigger pieces of the fine stuck to just you know certain certain ones
0: and i'm gonna have to get some of the powdered stuff because we, we just use we have popcorn every sunday night that's our thing and i'm always like it's not coating it efficiently <laughs> so now the yes will yes take care yes. Of that. yes yes okay it will. yep that so will
1: enlightening <laughs> and if you've ever like um i don't know if you like almonds but if you like soak almonds and sprout them and then um you actually can either Spray them with a brine water, or you could um, put them in a bag and they're kind of moist, and and shake it with the the powder salt, and then put them out and dry them again. That powder salt just gives you a really nice even coating um, across things like that: popcorn chips, uh, nuts, sunflower seeds, anything like that you're making at home is a great way to use uh, powder salt.
0: Yeah. Okay, so that brings me to another question. When I've talked to folks in the past about Sea salt or getting better salt, one of the things they're really concerned about is they say, well, the sea salt you're recommending doesn't have that label on it that says this is a necessary source of iodine or whatever, you know, that's on the iodized salt. So can you speak to that for a minute? Because I think some folks are definitely concerned about missing that nutrient if they switch to these different sea salts.
1: Absolutely. That that's actually a probably a, a discussion all on its so own that we could take, you know, 45 minutes on just on that topic, but salt. Has not, So when people here think of salt today, they often think of iodine. And historically, salt and iodine were never attached as a discussion. So a quick history lesson on iodine. World War I, the U.S. is trying to draft military men out of the Midwest. A lot of the whole country, but in the Midwest, when they were drafting these men, they noticed they had a higher percentage of goiter issues. This is a, a thyroid issue where the thyroid swells right up and makes this big a lump or goiter, and you can't draft men that have goiter. And so they sat and said, We have got to address this issue. Now, keep in mind, we're in the Midwest, you know, we're eating at this time a lot of processed foods, a lot of refined flours, a lot of refined sugars. And in the Midwest particularly, not a lot of seafood, not a lot of foods rich in iodine. And our soils are now, because of the way we've been farming, it doesn't have the nutrients that they did you know, years before that. And so they sat down and said, hey, we need to solve this goiter issue. We know that it's an iodine deficiency. How are we going to stop this? I would like to think somebody at that time suggested they do a campaign on eating foods rich in iodine, kelp, dulse, seaweed, fish. You know, there's a lot of great sources, you know, mozzarella cheese, there's lots of great sources for iodine. But for whatever reason, they decided that they would try to add it to flour. You know, like a lot of communities now will add fluoride, which is a completely different topic. They said, How do we add, how do we add iodine to people's diets? And instead of saying, hey, let's let's eat foods rich in iodine, the the, the decision was to add it to flour, it didn't work, you can't add it to water. And so somebody said, Hey, let's add it to salt. We know everybody has to eat salt to live which we do, so if we put make it a law that says if you don't add iodine to your salt, you have to put a warning that says it doesn't contain it. Now, even if your salt has iodine in it, if you don't add it, then you have to put a warning on that says it doesn't include it. Now, that's an FDA regulation, and it was a way to force the US population, and now it's the worldwide population, to eat more iodine. Now, this is actually kind of interesting because As you know, iodine is an absolute uh, necessary nutrient, and we all, unfortunately, don't eat enough iodine. Most people, most of your listeners today, or our listeners, um, you know, don't eat enough iodine. And so when you don't, goiter is a problem, but even more so, tumors, you know, uh, tumors in men and women, they have way less levels of iodine than they should. Um, and iodine impacts you know, diet, it, it, it impacts weight, it impacts sexuality. Um, as far as sex drive and the sex organs, there's a lot of negative things that happen when our bodies are low on iodine. The challenge is that iodine, when added to salt, is less than 10% bioavailable. So mm. it actually worked. And because they put all of this iodine in salt and kind of forced it on the community, it actually did really help. I do think though, that as you go back to a natural diet, you're eating foods, you're going out of your way to to find foods that are rich in iodine. And you're one of the challenges with iodine is it's it's a how this is a kind of a complicated discussion, but iodine is a halogen, and halogen contamination will block iodine reception. So fluorine, chlorine, bromine are all the other um, halogens that interact with iodine. And so if we have chloride, Chlorine in our water, fluorine or fluoride in our water, bromide, which is that new car smell, it's a fire retardant, it's had to do a lot of you know furniture, and any of those can interact with our ability to uptake iodine. And so, not only do many people not seek out foods that are rich in iodine, but they've also got these other um, environmental issues that are stopping iodine reception, and our foods are lower in nutrients than they were years ago. So what I tell people is, look, iodine is essential, and you need to seek out a way to get it. Our salt, the real salt, has about 10% of your daily recommended allowance of iodine. So there's a little bit in there. It's certainly not the amount you need, um, but the iodized salt, less than 10% is bioavailable anyway. So really, you need to just be on the lookout for foods that are rich in iodine, and, and then um, avoid things that are going to strip iodine, your body's ability to absorb iodine.
0: That's really good to know. And it, that puts my mind at ease, because I've always, I mean, I kind of had an idea, but I didn't know exactly what to recommend to folks. Um, but it's just interesting, some of the, the uh, advancements, I use that term loosely, that came out of that era, that, that same era where they were deciding, hey, let's just stick iodine in salt and see what happens. Um, fascinating stuff.
1: Well, and for your listeners who are interested um, in more information on the topic of iodine, one of my favorite books, there's an MD, he's out of the Midwest, his name's Dr. David Brownstein. He wrote a great book on salt years ago. He called it Salt, Your Way to Health. And then he wrote a follow-up book to that called Iodine, Why You Need It, Why You Can't Live Without It. And he does a really good job of explaining how iodine um, became such a, a deficiency in our diet, and he talks about ways to go out of your way to add iodine if you can't get enough in your diet. How to, you know, find a good iodine supplement. Um, but iodine is is key, um, and women with low amounts of iodine, it's they're impacted more noticeably than men. But men and women both are often low in iodine because of our diets and not seeking out, you know, like things like seaweed, kelp, dulse, fish. Um, and there's other good plants that are rich in iodine as well. You can find on the, you know, if you just Google search foods, rich in iodine, it gives you a good list. And if you can go out of your way to add those to your diet as often as possible, um, I prefer that versus an iodine supplement, but for some, you know, iodine supplements, probably a good idea. And, but iodized salt, is just not the way to go about it because again, with the iodized salt, not only is it not bioavailable, but then you also get that with a bunch of other additives with it.
0: Absolutely, yep, it makes complete sense. Um, I love it. so we're we're wrapping up here on our time. but before we jump off, could you just give us a little bit of kind of the crash course in how Redmond's real salt, the company began? because I was really fascinated that as I was reading up um, before our interview. did I I think I saw this correctly that Redmonds is the only salt mine in the USA. Is that correct?
1: Uh, not not mined. Um, mined in the way that we do it. Yes, um, there are salt mines underneath the city of Chicago. Um, Morton has a big facility there. There's some down in the Gulf of Mexico, Louisiana, uh, Kansas. So there are some ain't, there are some salt um, deposits under the U.S. Ours is pretty unique in terms of its its mineral structure and the flavor. Um, and we don't know all of the reasons, you know, why the pre-mortal oceans settled off the way they did and left different deposits of salt. Um but we're not the only salt operation in the us. Just we're the only ones that do it you know quite like we do mm-hmm. um, But the history of the deposit, so the the early settlers, you know the pioneers that came into the Utah Valley when they came into the valley noticed that the native populations were harvesting salt um, in this little valley, and there was a town called Salina or Salina, which is salt. And next to that, there was a town, they called it Redmond, and there were these three red mounds there, so they called it Redmond. And in this town, just north of town, there was a a spot where the salt came really close to the surface, actually two spots. And so my grandfather and his brother had a farm that was right right between these two little outcroppings of salt that were north and south of their farm. In the 1950s, the farm wasn't doing that well, and they knew there was salt north and south of them, and so they figured... If it's north and south of us, maybe it's underneath us as well. And so they nineteen fifty eight they started a little salt company initially selling it to local farmers. Um, we talked at the first of this podcast how essential salt is for animals., uh, we sold it for roads because salt in the in the west actually it uh, is used to keep roads safe because of the way salt melts snow. And so primarily, over those first few years, it was sold mostly for agricultural and industrial use. Of course, our family used it because we thought it tasted good and it had a unique look to it. Um, but it wasn't until there was a nutritionist from New York that came through, probably visiting the Grand Canyon, which is, you know, several hundred miles south in Arizona. And on his way back up, he stopped at our salt deposit and, and we gave him a tour and didn't think much of it. But a few months later, we started getting all these calls from back east saying, hey, we want to buy your salt. And we said, great. Is it for your cows? Are you You know, buying it for a road? And they said, no. You know, this nutritionist wrote this article about how the best, healthiest, tastiest salt in all of the U.S. came from this little mine in Utah, from this ancient seabed. And so we, we said, well, we better put this in a, in a shaker and sell it for, you know, for people because we really hadn't done that outside of ourselves. And so the family sat around and said, what do we call this stuff? It's not just, you know, it's not just, regular salt. It's not um, fake salt. It's it's just real salt. And uh, as simple as that was, the name stuck. And that's how the company kind of got started. Um, when we got into the 1970s and 80s, when the health food movement kind of really took off, um, that's when more and more people discovered real salt. And at the time, we didn't really do much to market it, but it kind of just traveled through the, the local, you know, health food stores and the local food groups. And and so now we're a lot bigger. You know, we, you can find us in a lot of health food stores, but you can also find us in grocery stores and online. And and it's a lot easier to, to find us than it was, you know, back in the in the late 1950s.
0: For sure. And you guys still do sell animal salt. Have I seen that floating around somewhere?
1: Yeah. So um, really just like you know people really enjoy a great flavored and healthy salt animals do too and in fact if you put one of our uh, salt licks it's a big you know kind of a salt block for for animals um right next to one of the processed salts the cows will actually eat our salt and the dirt that our salt was sitting on before they eat the other salt (laughs) yes Um, because they like good tasty salt too and uh and so yeah we do sell it for animals we have a, a lot of the organic, um, organic valley farmers, you know, use use our product, and a lot of the Amish communities and those that are really focused on, you know, animal health, animal husbandry, um, because it isn't the most inexpensive salt. A lot of the big commercial operations um, choose not to use this, but more and more are because they notice that you know people care about you know how their animals were treated and their food source, and. And the animals are healthier when they have a great source of well-rounded minerals, just like people are.
0: Absolutely. I love it. Um, so I guess to wrap it all up, is there anything else that you would like our listeners to know about salt or real salt or Redmond's or anything, anything along those lines?
1: <laughs> you know, I, I think we've really m- pretty much covered it all. If uh, you have listeners that write in with some more questions, be you happy to jump on a, a, a call and, you know, one of the things that that we b- believe at Redmond is that life, like our product, should be simple, clean, and real. And so, as 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 uh, silly as that might sound, or as simplistic as that might sound, we really just try to find products um, that are that are just simple. They're clean. They're real products. And so, we do have over the years we've added a few things to our salt list. You know, salt was kind of what got us started, but we have a line of bentonite clay that uh, we do facials and make some toothpaste out of. We've got a new electrolyte drink mix. You know, oftentimes people will, you know, more and more I think people are becoming aware that high amounts of sugary drinks aren't great, but there's still like a little bit of flavor. And after a hot day or maybe the soccer team's out playing and, and you do need to replace those electrolytes lost, you know, sodium, calcium, potassium, magnesium. So we have a new product, we call it Relight. And it's, uh, you know, basically just our salt with some other minerals added as well. And then a little bit of a flavor and some stevia. Um, so it's, it's just a lot of fun products that we have. It's, our websites, redmond.life. Um, and you can see more about us and the company there, but I just really appreciate Jill, you having us on. I've really enjoyed the conversation and love to meet you in person one of these days.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much. This was enlightening. I know I learned a ton and I'm sure my listeners did too. I really appreciate it. Thanks again. Was that amazing or what? I know I have a whole new appreciation for salt and the differences and the nuances, and I hope that you do too. If you would like to give Redmond's Salt a try, I have a special coupon code just for my old-fashioned on-purpose listeners but it's just for the month of June, 2020. When you go to theprairiehomestead.com slash salt, use the code HOMESTEAD when you check out to save 15% on all of your purchase. And if you spend $50, the shipping is free. I will confess that I went to Redmond's and bought a giant bag, like a 25 pound bag of salt. But if you're not quite ready to stock up to quite that extent. Maybe you just want to try the flavor instead. So you can tell a difference like Daryl talked about in today's episode. They have all sorts of sizes from medium-sized bags to little bags to little bitty shakers. So grab a size that works for you and enjoy. Thanks so much for listening, my friend. We will catch up on the next episode of the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast. Happy homesteading!